I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the green notebook of recently retired naval aviator Jack Curtis. I've known Jack for about seven years now, and he's intelligent, authentic, and he's just this amazing leader. In addition to our military service, we both share a love of writing, and he's written some of the most popular posts on From the Green Notebook. He wrote a post called Map on the Wall, which is about this creative way he showed his organization how they truly represented the United States of America. He also wrote another one called We Need to Talk About the Burden of Command, which is this extremely raw glimpse into the emotional challenges that commanders face when they are sitting at the top of the org chart. In this episode, we hit on a lot of topics. He talks about culture, diversity of thought, the importance of reflection, and why leaders should study ideas outside their area of expertise. And I promise there's going to be multiple moments in this episode that resonate with you if you are a leader, regardless of whether you're in uniform or not. So please welcome to the show, my good friend, Jack Curtis, call sign Farah. Hey, it's good to be here, Jacob and Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you could just start telling us a little bit about your story, what you're currently doing, and maybe how you ended up on this show. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. The first thing that I think most of your listeners are going to notice is that I'm not an Army guy. So thanks for having somebody from the Navy on your, on your show. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about uh, some of the things that you guys hit on, but from a different perspective. So thanks for that. I grew up in Northwest Florida. I went to the University of Florida on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Despite my best efforts, I managed to graduate from there in uh, four years and then headed up to Pensacola, Florida to start flight school. Finished flight school in 2002 up in Meridian, Mississippi, of all places. The Navy does a lot of their uh, jet pilot training up there. So I finished up there in 2002, and then I selected EA-6B Prowlers. They are now retired, but they were an electronic attack aircraft, carrier-based, home-based out of uh, Whidbey Island, about two hours north of Seattle, probably about two and a half, three hours north of Fort Lewis for your Army folks that are familiar with that location. I spent the next uh, almost 10 to 13 years here in uh, Whidbey Island 
bouncing between various operational tours. I uh, had an opportunity to be a flight instructor. After I finished up uh, what I think you guys might refer to as your uh, KD tour, it was a department head tour, what we call it, as an 04. I had a chance to go up to Newport for a year and do some reading and writing. That's where I met Joe. And then I went from there to Colorado Springs, did a little bit of work there on a staff, enjoying the mountain air. And then I was fortunate to get selected for command for naval aviation. Our first opportunity to command is at the 05 level. I was selected for command and then came back to Whidbey Island, where I spent uh, about 15 months as the executive officer, which is uh, the number two. We use what we call a fleet up model. So I spent about 15 months as the XO. And then after that time, I took command of the squadron sometime around the summer of uh, last year, summer of 19. And then I had an opportunity to take my squadron on deployment for most of uh, 2020. Uh, We left in January of 20, spent almost eight months deployed on the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower with uh, more than 200 consecutive days at sea, which was a record. We were not able to pull in anywhere because of uh, COVID pandemic concerns. Came back uh, middle of August, and then I turned over command of the squadron to my XO in October and retired from the Navy. My family and I have settled down here in Washington. We like it here, and this is where we're going to stay. Jack, your call sign. Could you talk a little bit about that? A lot of our listeners are not familiar with naval aviation culture. And so I'm just interested in in your call sign, how you got those, and, and then just kind of the origin of those in the Navy. Yeah. So I'll kind of start with the second part of your question, then I'll work uh, more specifically to mine. So call signs uh, in the Navy, Air Force uses them as well, but we're not going to talk about them. Call signs in the Navy are not meant to be complimentary. They're typically based upon an act of stupidity or some sort of uh, egregious mistake or some personal trait. We tend to take a philosophy where if you like your call sign, it's probably not going to stick. We want it to be something that you're not a big fan of. Really no reason other than just a little bit of fun and a little bit of ribbing that goes along with it. There's a bigger purpose, though, and it kind of goes beyond just us acting like 13-year-olds with nicknames, which some people think of. I think the purpose that call signs serve for us, particularly in naval aviation, is it's, it goes a long way towards flattening the organization. And what I mean by that is, you know, we do some remarkably dangerous stuff, like everybody in the military. But I think one of the things that naval aviation does really well, and perhaps better than other branches and services, is we put a lot of time and effort into the debrief. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about how awesome of a job we did in the debrief. We spend almost all that time talking about the things that we needed to tighten up, some things that we need to do better, the mistakes that we made. And one of the things that's really, really useful and and I think really healthy about those debrief environments is that young lieutenant for us, you know, that 03 can completely take a shot in the debrief at the senior officer if that senior officer made a mistake. Now you're going to do it professionally, you're going to do it with some courtesy. But we have this idea where, you know, there's, there's no rank in the cockpit because an 06 can fly into the ground as quickly as an 02. So there's no rank in the cockpit. And that goes a long way towards making sure the dialogue and the conversation that's taking place in the cockpit does not fall victim to rank gradient. And we extend that to the debrief as well, where we talk about leaving rank at the door when we walk into the debrief and it's just call signs. And I think that goes a long way towards bringing out a lot more learning points and really breaking down a lot of cultural barriers that you often get in a uh, hierarchical organization like the military. So that's the second part of your question. The first part of your question was, how did I get mine? If you uh, recall back to the uh, early aughts, uh, there was a uh, small indie movie called Super Troopers. I think it achieved cult status uh, with some of our generation. And uh, there's a character in that movie named uh, Rod Farva. 
He is not particularly well-liked by his peers. He had a bad haircut, maybe a short temper, and was a little bit overweight. So not somebody that you would particularly want to emulate. When I showed up to my first squadron, they had just come home from deployment, and they watched that movie probably every night. And uh, they took one look at me before they had even met me, and they decided that I was going to be Farva. And 20 years later, that's, that's still me. Jack, so in telling that, I guess you just ruined, you know, the image I had of Maverick and Top Gun. So you're saying that Maverick's call sign was not something that he did that was cool early in his aviation career. No. So there's some folklore and some oral history within naval aviation that the call sign of Maverick was one that perhaps the technical advisors from the Navy that were advising Bruckheimer and crew decided to give that character because it was something that we would have never given each other. We don't give each other call signs that are complimentary. And that's, I mentioned earlier, a little bit of difference between call signs in the Air Force and call signs in the Navy. And you talk to many folks from the Air Force and you're going to find guys with call signs like Fang and Viper and Snake and all these things that are just over the top. And there may be some other stories behind them, but they sound entirely too cool. We in the Navy tend to take call signs with an approach that is a bit more self-effacing. So Jack, you know, you and I met at the Naval War College because, you know, we both have an interest in writing and you wrote an article recently that actually got a lot of attention outside the military. I I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners about that article and just a little bit about like what was in it and the story behind it. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I wrote an article, it was titled Map on the Wall, and I wrote it after having been in command for a few months, maybe I think it was the fall of 19. And I wrote it really as a, as a way, and I can't remember who I should attribute this quote to, but, and I'm going to, and I'm going to mess it up. Forgive me. It's something along the lines of, I, I didn't really know what I thought till I wrote it. And honestly, when I sat down to write map on the wall, it was really just for me to kind of flesh out some ideas that I had in my head. And then uh, I shared it with one or two people and they were like, Hey, you know, that's, that's halfway decent. You should, you should do something with that. So where it came from was this idea that when I showed up to my squadron, I took a look around and I was reminded because I had been in Newport for a year. I'd been in Colorado Springs for two years. I'd been away from the flight line for a bit. But I took a look around and I just marveled at the fact that the military, but in particular the squadron I was joining, is really a microcosm of the United States. And we say that a lot. And I don't know if we often think about what that really means, at least not beyond appearances. And uh, I took a look around and I thought, man, this is really, really something. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of stuff in various media circles and you know, there was a lot of criticism about how we were training on these ideas of diversity. And it was a, you know, a maligned term and people had very, very strong feelings one way or the other about it. And I got to thinking about it a little bit. And I said, you know, I really think the fact that we come from everywhere and the fact that we're all looking at the same mission from different perspectives is a good thing. And I've said over and over that if everybody in my hangar looked at a problem set through my eyes, we were going to miss a lot because I have a lot of blind spots. We all do. But instead, I had 200 sailors and aviators and officers and you know, young enlisted folks looking at the same mission, the same requirements from each of their perspectives. And what I found was that that really yielded a lot better dialogue, which results in a lot better solutions. And so I thought about, you know, how do I want to depict this and how do I want to start to bring this idea to the forefront of my organization? And I decided that the best way to accomplish that was going to be through an onboarding process and you guys are familiar when you have any soldier check into your organization, they sit down with the chain of command, usually culminates with the commander. That's no different for us. So I got a map, I put it on a piece of cardboard, and I bought a jar of pins, and I hung it on my wall. 
And when a, a new sailor would come and sit down, they would check in with me. I, I would sit down with them and I would share with them that, hey, here's this map and here's these pins. And I, I told them what I wanted them to do was get a pin and put it in the map in their hometown. And after a while, the map started to fill up and it was really quite a sight. And I used that to explain to them and really graphically depict to them that we come from everywhere. And each of those pins represents a story. And each of those stories is built upon personal education, socioeconomic background, family structure, religious preferences, if they have one, you know, different races and, you know, different faith traditions. All those things that are different about us make us stronger as long as we approach those differences with this idea of respect and dignity. So I shared with them that, you know, all these things that are different about us, we could look at them one of two ways. They could be things that are divisive and things that keep us from working together, or we could embrace them and recognize that all these differences make us stronger. Because like I said earlier, it allows us to look at the same mission, at the same objective from different perspectives. And so as I was in command and as I had this map on the wall, it started to fill up with pins. And there's a whole nother conversation we could have about geographically where these pins started to cluster and, you know, where people that enlist in the military tend to come from. But it was really, really interesting. In hindsight, to kind of close up the segment here, in hindsight, I really wish that I had bought a world map, though, because I had sailors from all over the world. And I felt a little bit foolish that I had just limited my map to the U.S. So I ended up writing that article and a fantastic connection that I had made through Joe found it on your blog, actually, from the Green Notebook. And he read it and he really enjoyed it. And he ended up repurposing it on Forbes.com. And I think that's where it really started to get a lot of traction. Yeah, I've read that article, Jack. I love it, by the way. I also loved the article that you wrote about Joe Judge and the New York Giants. And it hit me. I was playing Kerplunk with my four-year-old son today. And he was explaining to me that when the marbles come out, that you lose. And if you get too many marbles, that you lose. And I was explaining to him that it's not about winning or losing. I was trying to explain to him it's not about winning or losing. It's about just having a good time and having fun. And reading your article, it reminded me of something that I truly believe in. And that's the process of something. Too many times people, leaders, commanders, any, anybody in the world attaches themselves to the outcome and not the process and making sure that that's right. Could you talk a little bit about that article in there? You know, you talked about how and why the process is so important. Could you just go over that a little bit for us? Yeah, I could. And I can actually link that back to the article we just talked about. And, you know, this effort with the map on the wall, the effort with the pins, the effort to have these conversations with my sailors about differences in race, differences in sexuality, differences in gender, differences in faith traditions. This wasn't anything that I was doing from an HR driven perspective. This wasn't anything I was doing because, you know, I was particularly virtuous or woke. This was something I did because winning is all that matters in this business. So maybe not in Kerplunk with your four-year-old, but winning in combat is all that matters in this business. But I recognized, or at least I believed, that I could not achieve that objective of winning in combat if I didn't have the strongest team assembled. And in order to do that, I needed to make sure that I was recognizing who these individual team members were and making sure that they felt bought in and part of this team and valued as individuals. So to kind of link that back to Map on the Wall and to bring it forward to the article that you asked about, I think it's the same concept. I think Joe Judge would tell you the same thing that I'm saying, which is that winning is all that matters for an NFL team. Uh, winning in combat is all that matters for us in the profession of arms. However, you can't do that if you haven't assembled a strong and healthy team. And you can't do that if you don't have people on your team who are bought into the process, like you're talking about, who don't feel like they are a valued member of the team who can in turn contribute to that process. So that leads me to my next question. And I love, you know, the article with Joe Judge. And if you look at 
one of the other teams that's been highly successful in the NFL, it's the New England Patriots. And you always hear commentators, you always hear sports analysts talk about the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady culture that existed, and that's why they were able to win so much. I'm going to talk sports a little bit here because your article is is based off of that. But when you look at people like Charlie Weiss, you look at people like Romeo Cornell and recently Matt Patricia, who just got fired from the Detroit Lions. They were all part of that New England culture, and they went outside of that culture and tried to recreate it. Where do you think people go wrong when they're trying to create that culture to win? So I think in the example that you use, when you use Belichick and then you use the multiple versions of mini Belichick that have spun off with varying levels of success, I think it comes down to a matter of authenticity. And I have to be very careful here. I've never coached in the NFL, the NCAA, so I don't know anything about calling X's and O's or developing a draft strategy. But I know a couple of things about leading a team. And I know that in order to do that effectively from the position of head coach or from the commanding level, you've got to be authentic and you've got to be you. And I don't want to presuppose what Matt Patricia did well or poorly. And I don't want to presuppose what some of the other assistants of Belichick's who have gone on to do other things did well or poorly. But I suspect there is an aura around each of them that comes with a lot of expectations and a lot of baggage because they did come from Belichick and he is on this pedestal. And I think a lot of times what we find as military leaders, whether we have worked on a major staff for some fantastic senior officer, or we come from a very storied organization with a very successful history, I think sometimes we come with a little bit of baggage and people expect, well, oh, he came from there, so he must be awesome. Or he worked with her, so he must be awesome. And I think a lot of times we can let that get in our way and prevent us from being authentic and really charting our own course. Not in a manner that forgets all the lessons that we learned from that mentor. In this case, those assistants who coached for Belichick. Hopefully they continued to take forth a lot of the lessons that they learned because they'd be foolish not to do the same as we would be in the military to not take forth the lessons that we learned from our mentors. But we have to go and be our own head coaches. We have to go and be our own commanding officers. We have to go and be our own leaders. Again, I don't want to presuppose that that is the singular problem that has affected some of those guys. But as I take your question and try to translate it into something actionable for me as I go forward in my leadership walk, or maybe for some folks that are listening to this, I think what I would take away from that is a focus on authenticity. Jack, what's interesting is the conversation you and Jacob just had about the article you wrote about leadership culture and the New York Giants is that both of you were pulling examples from outside the military, you know, in leading and coaching a football team and, you know, applying it to the context, you know, in which, you know, our listeners live in every day, you know, our military audience. And so I have to ask, like, how important do you think it is to look outside the military for leadership examples? And for, you know, when we're looking at trying to build a winning culture, do we just focus on history you know, military examples, service examples, or is there value in going outside of that? I think there's absolutely value in going outside of that. I'm going to answer your question in a second, but I think it's important because we're talking about this big concept of culture. And I want to share with you what I think and how I define culture. And I think that's going to help us answer your question about where we should go looking for examples to follow, if that's okay with you. So, you know, I jotted down some notes and this is something that I've kind of come to over time with my definition of what organizational culture is. And I think it's a collection of shared values, traditions, habits, and attitudes that serve as a binding agent 
for an organization. And, you know, I guess that sounds a little bit stuffy or maybe a little bit academic. So to make it easier for me to get my head around, I think about culture as the mortar that binds bricks together. So you think about a brick wall or a brick building and you've got the, the bricks and you've got the mortar. And I think of culture as being the mortar that holds the bricks together. And I think the bricks represent the individuals within an organization, each of them with their own purpose and role. But the mortar is what connects them to one another. And the mortar is what turns that brittle pile of bricks into a resilient structure that can really carry heavy loads. So that's how I think about culture. And you'll notice nowhere in my definition or in my example did I say anything that had anything to do with the military or business or entertainment for that matter. It's, it's very independent of all of that. So to bring it back to your question, I think it's absolutely important for us as military leaders to really have a, a pretty wide aperture and to think pretty broadly about where we can be gaining insight, where we can be looking for examples. I think a lot of times, particularly in PME, whether it's formal or informal mentoring, we get stuck in figuring out, oh, well, I got to read this book by this general because he was a general, so he must be awesome. Or I have to read this book by this admiral because you know, she had a lot of success and, and I, should, I should do that too. And there's not fault in that, but I think it's incomplete if that's all you do. I think you really need to look really broad. You need to look to the arts. You need to look to uh, entertainment. I think you need to look to business. And recognize that the military does not have the market cornered on leadership. We have a lot that we could learn from outside entities. And it's not just business because business screws up a lot of stuff too. I think we need to look pretty broadly. And when you bring us down to the tactical level, at the organizational level, there's an example that my son taught me unknowingly about why this is important. If all we're doing from the commander level or from the senior officer level is using our examples, our voice, and our references, whether they're books or articles or blogs or podcasts, if all we're doing is using the things that we find helpful to try to mentor our juniors and our teammates, we're going to fall into the trap that I fell into trying to teach my kid how to ride a bike. That might sound a bit disjointed, but stay with me. I was really struggling to teach my kid how to ride a bike. He was an athletic kid. He's a healthy kid. He could do it. He just didn't want to listen to me telling him how to do it. And this went round and round for weeks and it was dragging on really long, way too long. And I got so frustrated, Joe, that I was actually in the process of walking across the street to go bribe my neighbor into teaching my kid how to ride a bike. And as I was doing that, I turn around, I look and my kid's riding his bike down the street. But the point of that is my neighbor wasn't going to tell my son anything different from what I was telling him. There's really only one way to ride a bike. But he didn't want to listen to me. He got tired of listening to me. He got tired of listening to the same voice. And I didn't do this through any genius. I did it out of frustration, but I was like, well, I'm going to go get somebody else to tell my son how to do this because I think that will work better than me just saying it over and over. And now you take that back to the military or the business or whatever environment you're in. And I think sometimes you need to go outside your normal lifelines and find some other examples that you can use because people get tired of hearing dad talk. That's a really good point, Jack. And, you know, I, I know in my personal, you know, professional development journey, I've found so many great leadership lessons outside the military, whether it be going back 2000 years to the ancient Greeks or a polar exploration in the early 1900s. You know, there's just so many different places to pull from, but, you know, tying it all back to what you and Jacob were talking about earlier is that I think it comes down, I agree with you, it comes down to authenticity. It comes down to, you know, looking at these lessons from outside areas, pulling the ones you want, 
discarding the ones that aren't good or are doing the exact opposite of what you see are, are bad examples. And you know, there's a author I think you're familiar with that Jacob and I are huge fans of. He's going to be on the show soon. His name is Stephen Pressfield, and he wrote a book called Authentic Swing. And one of the points his book's made is that a golfer can only swing his own swing. And he says that no matter how hard he tries, the golfer cannot swing anyone else's swing. He can only swing his own. Therefore, he must find his own swing. And so I, I think that in you know canvassing all sorts of different areas of life for leadership, it helps us build our own swing, so to speak, you know, to becoming better leaders. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I am a big fan of Stephen Pressfield's work. In fact, I just loaned out, and I'm awful because I can't remember the name of it, but I just loaned out his book about the uh, Israeli Air Force to, uh, to a friend of mine because I thought it was such fantastic writing. So when you have, you know, you talk about culture and you talk about teams and how to build culture and how to build teams. So one of my questions is, and I'll bring it back to sports, but it's also relatable to the military too, is what happens if you have a person that doesn't buy into the, you know, team first concept and they are completely about themselves? That can quickly create a toxic environment. How do you deal with it? How do you prevent it? And how do you identify it? How do you deal with it? How do you prevent it? So Jacob, that's a great question. And, and it's honestly, it's one that I think anybody in a leadership position is going to struggle with. I think we're naive if we think that, you know, we're going to be able to, to be some fantastic orchestrator or coach or leader and have everybody immediately buy in. And I can tell you it was something that I struggled with in command. And for me, it came down to this idea that we had old school and new school. And there were some, there were some NCOs and some senior NCOs that thought some of the ways that I was talking about things and some of the ways that I was approaching decisions were new school and they were PC and they were, they were this and they were that all because I was willing to talk about things that most leaders are uncomfortable talking about. Some of these folks, some of these people in critical leadership positions weren't on board with it. In two cases, it came down to the fact that they were not treating their subordinates with dignity and respect. They were not open to the idea that the fact that their teams were comprised of people that were very, very different was a feature and not a flaw. And it was affecting the, the microclimate, the microculture within their individual work centers. And it got bad and it got bad enough that it got to my attention. And so I think what you have to do is when you find yourself with people who aren't bought in, when you find yourself with people who aren't at least willing to open themselves to the possibility that what you are saying could have some validity to it, you need to be true to your vision and you need to be true to the things that you have said. And so we held those individuals accountable. And I don't want to get into too much detail about either of them because they're still serving and they are doing incredibly well. But we had to have some hard conversations with those individuals because the negative impact that their unwillingness to buy in and the negative impact their unwillingness to at least be open to these ideas was creating for their teams. And so you have to put your money where your mouth is. It's one thing as a leader to say that I value these things. It's one thing to say that these things are important to us. And it's quite another to then hold people accountable when they don't demonstrate a willingness or a desire to get on board. Now, as a leader, you need to make sure that you're on solid footing. You know, if you've got some half-cracked idea about how you want to do things and people aren't on board with it, well, you should be introspective and, and think about, okay, am I on solid footing here or am I out to lunch? And this is where you're your senior enlisted advisors, your XO, your mentors, all those people we just talked about, they can help you with that. But once you establish that what you're putting forth is valid and noble and it is focused on achieving the objective, then you need to continue to move forward. And, and if people can't get on board with that, you need to hold them accountable for that. And there are a lot of ways that you can do that. We could talk about that if you want to. But 
I think that's really one of the biggest things that you need to keep in mind. Yeah, Jack, the tough conversations, I think, you know, it's one of the harder aspects of leadership. And so it reminds me of an article that you also wrote about your time in command. And as I read it, it just reminded me of, you know, the burdens that come along with commanding an organization. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. So this was an article that was titled, uh, We Need to Talk. And it was an article that had been, honestly, it had been in my head and had been on my heart for a long time. I just never found a way to put it to paper, put it to words. I wasn't comfortable putting these ideas out there. And unfortunately, I waited until I had almost only like a week left in command before I published it. And I should have put it out sooner. But all that to say, I learned through being both the XO for you know a little over a year and then having been in command, particularly during the deployment that we were on and all the challenges that we faced, command is hard. And I know there are people who are going to be listening to this that are going to chuckle and they're like, yeah, no kidding. And I'm not complaining about it. And I do want to take quick exception with how you phrased it. I never thought of it as a burden of command. I thought of it as a privilege to command. There are a lot of really, really qualified men and women who don't get selected for the next milestone or don't get selected to command at various levels when some of us do. And I think we need to humble ourselves around that. So I like to think of it as the privilege to command, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with a cost. And what I wrote about in that article was a particular stretch of time when I was the XO where we had some really, really awful things happen to some of our sailors. And I I won't go through the entire article with you. I, I think it's out there if somebody wants to read it. But kind of the the so what of that was I was carrying a lot of weight on my shoulders trying to be a good XO for my commanding officer. I was trying to knock down a lot of the hard problems so he could keep his head up and out focused on the bigger picture. I was trying to be everything for everybody. I was trying to have the best answer for every knock that came on the office door. I was trying to have that smile even when I didn't want to have that smile. I was trying to be upbeat even when I didn't want to be upbeat. These are all important things. But at some point, it starts to wear in you. I was trying to be a good XO. I was trying to be a good leader. I was trying to be a good pilot. I was trying to be a good husband, a good father, a good friend, a good mentor. I was trying to be all these things. And at some point, that well starts to run shallow. And for me, it came to a head and I had some, you know, I had a little bit of medical scare. Thankfully, that's all it was. But it kind of caught my attention. And it was something that I tried to remain mindful for for the rest of the time that I was in command. And it wasn't until I was about to leave command and one of my young uh, junior officers came to me and courageously told me, he's like, hey, Skipper, you know, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to talk to somebody. It's not a big deal. I just, I'm working through some stuff and and I'm talking to somebody about it. And I was like, hey, man, that's awesome. Good for you. I'm proud of you. And I was driving home that day and I was like, man, you are such a coward and such a hypocrite. You know, here you've got this young lieutenant coming and telling you that he's doing something that you should have been doing a long time ago. And it kind of just hit me that you know, when we're in leadership positions, we have this idea of who we're supposed to be and we're supposed to be strong and we're supposed to be bulletproof and resilient and have all the answers and be on all the time. And some people can do that. I think most of us can't. I don't think I'm alone in that regard. And it's okay is really what I was trying to get to with that article. It is okay to admit that this is a challenge and it's okay to admit that this is hard. You just need to find somebody to talk to about it and share that with. Being in command can be lonely. You don't have very many peers that you can go and really bear it all out for. You know, I I was trying to do a good job of not driving home every day and dumping all my problems on my wife because, you know, she's got her own stuff going on. And then when I'm deployed, I don't want to just make every email that I sent home to her about how, what I'm working through, because 
she's back here single parenting through a pandemic with no school. So she doesn't want to hear about my problems. Right. So the reason why I wrote it was I just felt I was like, you know, I don't think I'm alone. I think there's a lot of people that could really benefit from hearing somebody in a relatively senior position that I was in say that it's okay to recognize that this is hard and that it has a cost and just find somebody to talk to about it. And I think that's it. Just find somebody that you can talk to and just get some stuff off your chest. Jack, I think that's great advice. And we sat down with the Lumineers lead singer, Wesley Schultz, and he talked about going to see people to talk to. And it was kind of funny in a way that he presented it because he said, I talked to somebody about myself and then I go and I talk to somebody with my wife and my relationship with her. And then I go and talk to somebody else with the members of the band. So, you know, he's having three different conversations with three kind of different sets of people there. I know there's been a stigma in the military when I was in of not going to talk to people. And I know for me, when I came in, I had a clearance and I had to get a clearance. And whenever you go to talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist or anything like that, you have to report it. And I know that really kind of prevented a lot of people from going and talking to somebody. I know the military is doing a good job on changing those rules on who you can talk to or what subjects you can talk about. So the fact that you bring that up and the fact that you support that is is really good. Could you talk on that at all? You know, how the military might be able to, you know, do a better job at telling their troops that it's okay to go talk to somebody. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to my experience with the naval aviation. And I can tell you that in the example I used just a moment ago, I would have never known that that young lieutenant had gone and talked to somebody if he hadn't come and told me. And I think that's a really, really good thing. And we held some of the highest clearances for the stuff that we did. And he was under no obligation to come and tell me. He just wanted to share that with me because he, he wanted me to know what he was working through. And I, I was grateful that he did. I think what we as a, as the DOD and particularly within the department of the Navy and particularly within Naval aviation, what we can be doing a better job of, because I think we have at least taken a few steps away from that stigmatization. Like you talked about, we still have a long way to go, but I think we're pointing in the right direction. But I think what we can do is we can make more resources available. And all this always comes down to money. But I can give you an example from when I was deployed on the aircraft carrier last year. There were approximately 5,000 people on an aircraft carrier. And this is a deployment unlike anybody had ever done, at least since World War II. We had no port calls. We had extremely limited connectivity. I think the astronauts on the space station have better connectivity than we had on the ship. So there's a lot of stress the world's burning down around us, whether it's riots or it's COVID or it's this or it's that. This team is under some incredibly tough conditions, at least as tough as you can get without being in, in combat. And for 5,000 people on this aircraft carrier, there were approximately six people. There were five members of the chaplain corps and one guy who we jokingly referred to as the talk boss, who you'd have to schedule an appointment for a week or two in advance. And then there was one psychiatrist. So for 5,000 people, you've got a really, really, really small number of people who are there who have any level of formal training. And five of those are with the chaplain corps. And I have the utmost respect for the chaplain corps. I appreciate what they do. I appreciate the role that they fill. But there is always going to be a little bit of a hiccup in somebody's step before they go talk to a chaplain if they are not already a person of faith. That's just reality. Um, So I think it's important that we had chaplains on board. They serve an incredibly valuable role, but a lot of people aren't going to be comfortable going and talking to this chaplain if they're not already a person of faith. So I think we need to recognize that. 
So what can we be doing if we can get more resources available for our soldiers and our, and our sailors? Ultimately, that's going to come down to money. It's going to come down to competing interests. But I think this ends up being a thing where we have to put our money where our mouth is. And if, if we say that this is an important thing, if we say that taking care of ourselves is important, and if we say that we are open to the idea of going and talking to people so that we can work through this garbage that we're carrying around, then we've got to have those people for them to talk to. And that's really what it comes down to. Hey, Jack, I really appreciate your time today. And as we close out this interview, you know, one of the things that we've been doing for years now at From the Green Notebook is sharing lessons learned. And so what would you say is probably the greatest lesson you've learned in your military service that you plan to take forward with you into your next career? I don't know if it's so much of a lesson learned because I don't know that I could pin one, just one down, but I think one of the biggest observations that I have taken away and what really informs a lot of what I work on now is how incredibly difficult it is to effectively communicate within an organization of any size, whether it's at the platoon level, battalion level, or a squadron, or wherever you're at. And the example that I use is my team, we, we did some pretty incredible stuff, you know, took $80 million jets and you know, launched and recovered on board ship at night. We went into harm's way. We trained for some incredibly difficult and challenging missions and complex environments. And yet the most difficult thing that I did as a leader, the most difficult thing that my team did as an organization was communicate. It's that hard. However, it is that critical because with poor communication across an organization, again, of any size, you really start to lose a lot of the buy-in is a lot of the folks start to wonder, well, why are we doing this? Because it hasn't been communicated to them. Well, when are we doing this? Where are we going to go? How long have we been gone? When are we getting the tool? All these questions that start to really affect people's buy-in and people's willingness to do hard things for you. A lot of the stuff that really starts to affect the integrity of the mortar that I described holding those bricks together, it's all directly impacted by how effectively you can communicate. I think that's probably the biggest observation that I took away from my time, not just in command, but my time in the military. Jack, thank you so much for coming on today. I think some of the things we talked about, you really echoed you know, some of the, the key points that we're trying to hit on this podcast and the key points that we've covered over the first and second season. So I thought it was a great conversation and, and just really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Jack. It was a great episode. And I look forward to you know getting these lessons out to those leaders who are coming up who are in places that you were just a couple of years before. Yeah, I'm glad to help. And I'm really grateful for your friendship. And I'm grateful that you had me on the show. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching from the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, desert on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand. Shoot me down.